You're listening to Radio Primavera Sound, proudly presented by Cupra. Today on Line Noise, my guest is one of my early idols in electronic music, Dave Clark, one of the first British producers to really put his stamp on techno music and a DJ of quite incredible skill. Uh, his iconic single, Red 2, is now available digitally for the first time to mark its 30th anniversary, and it'll be followed by a big box set later this year, including a remastered version of his Archive One album and all kinds of other things. Uh, I hope you enjoy the interview. So um, Red 2 um, has just been released to streaming um, and you've got um, a big box set coming out this year, including Archive One. I'm wondering, are you a nostalgic person? It's, it's one of those questions you can never win because if you say no, then it's like, oh, okay, slash and destroy person. If you say yeah, then it's old curmudgeon. Um, so it's, I mean... It's really bizarre to think this is 30 years ago. It really is that bizarre. Put it in perspective, kid in the 80s, 30 years before be the end of Second World War. So it's that, you know, the difference between maybe one TV channel and loads and everything in colour and people being able to talk to each other is uh, before. It, it's, it's a strange thing. 30 years is, is quite bizarre because a lot of sort of anniversaries are sort of coming up this year, like... 25 years of playing a fabric um and then uh i think 30 years of playing in napoli um i think it's like 35 years since my first release uh, so it's like wow i'm really at that point of, of the life and i i do have a good memory um so i do remember a lot of detail and so you know i can look back and think yeah, okay, well, this was done this way, that was done that way, and that was cool. So, yeah, in, in some ways, I mean, I'm, I'm proud of, of, it, of it, very much so. Um, but I also do look to the future. I think you have to as an artist. I'm interested what you make about the state of techno, because... Oh, we go straight there instantly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason I'm really interested is, obviously, I've been listening to a lot of your music this, this week, um, including you know, uh, Red 2, including the whole the whole Red series. And they still sound absolutely brilliant. Um, and they still sound um, pretty much contemporary for me, which is on one hand a, a sign of how well they're produced. But the other, it does make me wonder if techno is still a progressive force. I, I love the way, you, the cadence of your voice leading me into my own self-destruction by explaining how I feel about this. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's a tricky one because, you know, everyone that's coming through now, Instagram means the world to them. And that's their prime medium uh, of Instagram, of either being in the party on Instagram or DJing on Instagram. And music perhaps is a second or third, or dare I say, fourth part of that whole equation and but i'm also not of the generation that goes it were better in my day because i don't believe that everyone has their own um formula everyone has their own goalposts everyone has their own sort of way they view things 
what I liked from when I was DJing 30 years ago was um, mobile phones were really just a way of phoning up the AA or the RAC if you're broken down by the side of the road or maybe your partner letting letting them know because it was 50 pence a minute to phone someone and it, it, mobile phones were just a sort of backup device where you didn't use them for everyday part of life so for example you mentioned bugged out i'll go to voodoo and those other places people would just turn up and immediately dance and that was it you know and then occasionally would talk to each other but it, they would dance in unison it was a whole everyone as the meme goes everyone living the moment and there was no bullshit and, and, and weirdly enough say like it in in around 2005 when smoking was starting to be banned everywhere uh then i remember this like you play an island and you think i've played a bad record because half the dancer would go to the smoking area but in the 90s everyone would be smoking in the club as well so everyone was just in the vibe from beginning to end they would join the journey from beginning to end and the clubs were dark uh, of course there'd be some lights uh, mostly strobe maybe lasers if it was posh maybe a big disco ball but it was very the lighting was just there to sort of uh not show the dj just to provide a little bit of information for the dance floor but nothing really you know it's all about bass and sound system and so people were really, really in the moment and really committed to what you were doing. And then you'd have your 20 or 30, as we used to call them, train spotters, who would just be at the front like this and just staring at what you're doing and trying to understand it. And then some of those would become DJs eventually as well. Now, people are just holding up phones. Like you see the majority of gigs... Uh, it's, it's, it's really bizarre. It's like the whole world turned into a bunch of lemmings because say there's like a really weird thing happening with, uh, I don't know, something newsworthy is happening and there's a, a crowd of people. What The person in the back sees is 20 or 30 or 50 people with their phones up. It's Black Mirror. And, and you see people living vicariously through their phone as opposed to actually putting the phone in their pocket and just being there and seeing what's happening, experiencing what's happening, and then recanting it verbatim, as opposed to showing a video. And that lack of connection enabled a new way of what's called techno, which I don't call techno, to be perceived. So, you know, when we went to these clubs, some which you mentioned before, it was always the people that didn't fit in at school always the people that are on the outside of society being cool breakfast club you know that sort of vibe uh, and now it's techno bros it's just basically just people trying to have an instagram story of some sort and the music is really tertiary maybe even fourth down the line it's not that important but people seem to be enjoying it so i'm not going to be saying it's shite it's just not about the music anymore it's just not and it's not about counterculture anymore it's just not but transpose that onto other cultural things such as photography such as film such as art you know and again that's happened so it's a change it's a change in the world and that happens and why not you know because maybe there's going to be a different ben and dave show in 30 years time so 
Remember when you did that Instagram moment and all the fireworks went off at exactly the same moment where you did sit and then they'll be go, oh yeah, but it's not the same anymore, is it? You know, because now people are DJing upside down in space and it it doesn't matter. It's how you experience it. And I'm really I really cherish what I experienced because it was a skill set that was based on musical knowledge and passion that was enjoyed by people that had an appetite for learning more about music. And and I, I really, I'm so glad I lived through those years because that's how I still think. It's interesting you mentioned the smoking ban. I was just um, reading something the other day which talked about the impact the smoking ban had. And it was, um, I can't remember who, but it was someone saying that basically when that hit in the UK, which I think was 2007, um, DJs felt like they had to play more and more anthems, more harder things, because, you know, if you drop the tempo for like two minutes, people went off to have a cigarette. Did you experience the same thing? I, I never did bangers and anthems, so I probably wasn't in that marketplace. Um, but it was a strange experience in the beginning because people didn't know how to do it. And I think I was in Waterford or maybe Dublin, and I was thinking, have I done something wrong? It, it just felt really, really weird. And then they all come back in again. And for a year, it was a little bit tricky to, to know what to do because you sort of take it as a personal thing when all of a sudden half the dance floor disappears for a Lambert and Butler somewhere, you know? It's, it's just a bit weird. And so you're thinking, well, but then eventually everything calmed down a little bit and then everyone got together behind the phone. So it's all good now, right? <laughs> so I wanted to ask about Red, um, the Red series again, which, as I said, had the massive impact um, on techno music. Um, what do you think distinguished it from other techno that was out there or other electronic music, if you like? I don't think anything distinguished it as different because everything was different. That's the thing. So you walk around in an architecturally impoverished part of the world where every single building is the same <laughs> and you don't know where the fuck you are, right? Because there's no landmarks. And then you walk around Amsterdam, for example, and you don't know where the fuck you are because it's full of landmarks. I'd rather be walking around full of landmarks. And that was what was happening because I wouldn't say it was so different than everything else. Everything was different from itself because we were still trying to work out how to do things. There wasn't like an internet uh, central knowledge base of YouTube videos of how to compress properly or how to EQ properly on the desk, how to produce properly. There wasn't even really any school of electronic music. And in fact, it wasn't even taken seriously as a possible life career. Uh, and now you can just look things up and it's really f easy to find things. And so everything sounds the same because everyone's following the same things. Whereas, you know, you listen to a suburban night track from the period there, you listen to a new beat track from the period there, you listen to my track, you listen to an underground resistance track, you listen to uh a track on relief you listen to a surgeon track everything was different it wasn't like oh my gosh dave's track is so different than everything else everything was different everything was a landmark for each artist because they were all trying to do something without understanding completely how to get it across uh, and that was what made it interesting it was all uh, everyone was speaking their own language but it translated so you may disagree with this, but I always thought that your music sounded somehow bigger than a lot of the music out there, bigger and, and louder. Um, 
would you agree would you agree with that and if so like how did you do it so i would read a lot of magazines because they were the only things that were um linking it together but they always seem to manage to completely ignore electronic music unless it involved Kraftwerk or jean-michel Jarre or vangelis or tomita but when it came to like electronic music that was currently happening like things like lfo i mean jesus when lfo that sounded different than everyone else right uh, when lfo came or joey belchin came nothing was in the magazines of those times so i'd read sound on sound which is still in existence and i actually ended up writing for them for a little while which is fun i managed to do an interview with surgeon to get him on there i would be reading and trying to transpose the information of well this compressor would be jolly good on a rock track and you know you could do it to do the drums and blah 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 and i'll be like okay and then i'll be looking at a lessy um uh, outboard like the um the midi verb and the quadra verb and then Alessi brought out this really cheap compressor called the 3630 and i got that because i try i used to borrow compressors and and, and noise gates from venues so i'd borrow the drama stuff and it didn't sound so good for me it's a very venue very venue specific i don't want to go too much down this technical um i think because people get a bit lost and a bit confused but anyway see so Alessi 3630 was about 300 quid and i used it and I was like, holy shit. I didn't know what I was doing. No idea. Just You just work and see what you're doing. And it was like amazing. And I managed to get a signature sound with that, so much so that I'd be speaking to Thomas Bangalter from Daft Punk in the Rex Club. And he was like, ask, well, how did you get this sound? And I'd tell him, and then they use it on loads of their records. And I think, why did I tell people? I should just keep these things quiet. Um, so that was good. And then the fact that I was working with a guy called Nils, who uh, used to cut records, sadly passed away at the exchange in Camden. And Nils's knowledge was insane. So he would push what I already did even further. Um, it's like when you have a photo done and then you give it to someone, they do something on analog printing technology uh, that you, wouldn't, wasn't, you weren't even aware of, like silver gelatin or whatever. And then they do something which is like, they understand your vision and then bring it up a level. So Nils would do that for me it, when it was exchanged on vinyl. Uh, and so that that's how it, it just became louder. Uh, when you listen to it now, of course it's not, but at the time, like to, to get the bass drum to come through was quite tricky for a lot of people. And I just managed to stumble across twiddling knobs to get the sound that I wanted without even knowing what I was really doing with the compressor. I think I remember you saying once that then basically loads of people just nicked your bass drum sound. Yeah, but uh, everyone was nicking everything, so it's not really a big deal. But I think, uh, for example, like the whole of Primate, uh, everything that was coming through Primate basically had my bass drum or my chord structure that was going through there uh, all the time. Um, a lot of the early drum code, again, the same thing. But, you know, it's okay because, like, we'd all be inspired by each other and it was always like a slightly different spin it wasn't so i mean the stuff that's obvious is insulting of course but a large amount of the time it's like a, a different spin on everything and that's okay you mentioned thomas bangalter Southside again was one of the tunes i was listening to um just this week um which is one of my all-time favorite house tunes i think that absolutely felt like it could fit on on roulette with those early thomas bangalter tunes yeah they were around about the same time, right? I mean, you, you mentioned I think they were about two years later. Right, right. 
did you like those kind of really songs the tracks on the rocks or yeah of course i mean i still play it yeah uh, I, I still play it I, I i love that stuff um because that stuff for me was what was inevitable where i thought daft punk should have gone um they went in the right direction for them i mean the whole world admits to that um but i thought they could have gone there and it felt like it was thomas sort of still referring to teachers the track they did and just bringing all that influence from all the people that they mentioned into those tracks and yeah of course they're still brilliant and you're a big fan of chicago house well still are i presume i don't even know if chicago house still exists actually in the same way that it did um because everything is not really city specific because what it used to be is like every single city had its nascent sound and would um gestate that in isolation for a few years and then someone would discover it somehow through an import shop or whatever and then all of a sudden after four or five years of them making their sound everyone got on it now everything's instant so no one has that chance to really be uh you know gestating a particular sound because everyone's on it in the same way with fashion um but yeah i mean chicago house came well before techno for me like well well before electro before that and producers like mike dunn for example were really techno for me even though i didn't know what techno was as a word uh mike dunn and all those acid tracks hot mix five all those people that were doing mickey oliver that were doing those sort of pieces of music for me it was like yeah it's house of course it's house because it was like slower tempo At the same time it was really techno for me so you you mentioned earlier on it's almost 35 years since your first record um which was hardcore yeah. on, on xl um I, th- I listened back to that this week I was it's amazing. pretty shit, right <laughs> it's fun it's fun you know i was amazed by how many samples there are you know that wasn't what i was expecting but like do you still like it I mean, well you said it's shit, but does it still have some kind of no i mean i'm just being a bit disingenuous because it's so simple um but then you only i only had 0.5 megabyte of sample space at that time um and i just remember the pain of going through to a studio and linking up to some time code to get it to happen and it didn't sound that much different um yeah i mean it was basic you know it was i i was struggling at the time because uh like where we're at now the whole of uh techno at that point the rave scene became ultra commercial clubs were suffering badly because people couldn't be bothered to stay in at a club at two o'clock and probably end up in a fight at the end of it they'd rather go to a rave and then to the clubs were like really suffering so i was kind of out of work at that point with, with djing and so because I had so much energy to want to put in music, I thought, well, I'm going to start making music because I'd already bought drum machines when I was 15, 16 from working hard in a shoe shop. Uh, and I wanted to make music. So I was doing that. And it was like my very first efforts of making music. Um, and it's rudimentary. And that's being polite. It's rudimentary. Uh, I, I mean, I remember borrowing a 303 bass uh, machine and just sampling every all the bass different notes at different resonance so I could actually pretend I had a 303, but I really didn't. And I'm actually quite proud of Get, uh, get a Little Stupid because it samples Duran Duran because I love that Save a Prayer. It's a beautiful, beautiful track. A big fan of Duran Duran, like their, their musicianship was mesmerizing. And Save a Prayer, I always remember listening to the, in, in, in my 
parents' car because they used to argue so much all the time. So I had headphones on listening to that piece of music all the time to avoid hearing them arguing. And so there's all these different meanings in it. And, you know, there's like drum loops, I think, from Arthur Baker, from, you know, it's all samples in those days, all samples. I mean, like, Hey, Are You Ready? That I'm really proud of because that for me was like finally managed to get all that hip hop pastiche in that I was really inspired from. And then I, I, that, that record, Hey, Are You Ready? I'm more proud of. And in a way, Jarbage, which uh, cheekily samples Martha and the Muffins, uh, in the days before sample clearance was even an issue. Uh, you know, like two years later, a sample clearance was an issue, but in those days you could sort of get away with things, which is why it's not available now at all anywhere. But it was fun to do those things, but would I say I'm proud of it musically? Not really. After Hardcore, you released music as Pig City. Um, yeah. And then eventually uh, you started to use your own name. I'm yeah. afraid uh, it's going to be horrendous amateur psychology. But was that because you kind of felt it was more you, the music you'd made, like true to yourself? So, so Pig City was like a homage because I, I, I still skateboard a little bit, but if my knees allow me, but I used to skateboard a lot. And Pig City was the name of Brighton because as a skateboarder, you'd always get stopped by the police. So that's why it was called Pig City. Interestingly enough, it then got used as a pseudonym, I think, for a production company from Norman Cook, even though I don't think he ever skateboarded and he comes from up north. Um, but aside from a slight snipe at that, um, uh, I, I came up with all these different names because I don't know. It just felt weird. And of course, you know, I had my own label, Magnetic North, where I was releasing under Directional Force, which was signed to RNS. Uh, and then Graphite, Autonique, Fly By Wire. And then finally, when I felt I had my own sound, when I felt I had ownership and it wasn't just some weird experimental, not sure who the fuck I am, then I felt I could actually have my own name on music. Yeah. Obviously, you started off making hardcore. Was there ever a moment where you attempted to go down the sort of breakbeat jungle route, which is where like a lot of hardcore producers went? No, um, because I, I like reggae and I didn't like double beat. Um, and I, I believe Carl Cox once said that he invented jungle. I seem to remember reading that. So uh, I found that a little bit confusing and I wasn't really wanting to go down that route either. So for me, breakbeat was always about hardcore. It was always about a homage to... Uh, the hip hop that made us break dance because I used to break dance a little bit, well, body pop more than break dance. Um, and it was more in homage of that. And Jungle uh, felt totally like a different musical scene that I didn't feel part of. And for me to have joined it would have felt very strange. And weirdly enough, I do have some respect from people that do drummer bass and jungle. Because uh, I, I think they understood musically where I was coming from with Detroit, Chicago influence. But for me to have made a drum and bass jungle thing, it would have felt fake on my behalf, disingenuous, because it wasn't where I was at. I really appreciated their production skills. Some of the edits on some of the, um, uh, the, the drum loops were really insane. And I really, really, really appreciated that. It really followed on for like Omar Santana and Chet Nunes, how they could do, 
and, and do that. It was brilliant. And so production skills, absolutely. And it was always fun bumping into like Fabian and Groove Rider, say at Atomic Jam, uh, or just catching up recently and speaking with Goldie. It's, it's always, these people are music heads. But I felt if I would have gone down that jungle route, it wasn't even a choice for me, but if I would have gone down that, it would have felt, nah, I'm not really representing who I am. That said, I, I still feel that even in the sort of red days, there was like a touch of hardcore to the music, right? Yeah, like, of course. Yeah. Absolutely, because, you know, I grew up on hip-hop, and breakbeats were a really important thing to me. And when you had these tracks that had breakbeats at 120 BPM, it was like, holy shit, this is brilliant, because it didn't always have to be a breakbeat at 100 BPM or 85 or 103 you know, when you heard Mantronics and then you heard that at different BPMs, it was like, this is really, it makes me want to dance, you know? That's what it was all about. It makes me want to body pop and, and do weird shit with my body. Don't worry, I won't do that unless you invite me to your wedding, then I'll do it in front of everyone. Um, but it made me want to really do that. And, you know, you'd hear these records on Tam Tam Records, like Dynamic Duo, which had this strong fucking beat. Or you'd hear, like, Ruth Joy, uh, produced by Mantronics, with really strong beats, and it's like, it didn't always have to be a drum machine. And coming from hip hop and electro, having that swing in there felt liberating. Do you still dance? Do you still go to clubs and dance? No, I don't go to clubs and dance. No, that would be weird. Um, no. And actually, I think the last time I went to a club and danced was quite some time ago. And I actually ended up with massive amounts of respect for all the dancers because, fuck me, you have to have legs of steel to pick your boots up when it's caked in beer and it's sticky as fuck. I was like trying to find a hack and by pouring water on where I was dancing to actually have the freedom of moving away from the beer stickiness. Um, I mean, I, I still dance behind the decks, of course, because you can't be a DJ and not dance, that's just bizarre. Uh, and, you know, sometimes like if a DJ is playing and I really enjoy it, I will dance on the side. Um, but, you know, and also a lot of clubbers will come up to you and talk to you when you're, when you're in the middle of a dance floor, which is, not so much fun uh, when actually you just want to escape to the music. So I, I go to concerts still, yeah. Um, I read about, uh, I was reading your Wikipedia and that's not always um, accurate, I know. But um, it mentioned that you had a brief period of homelessness. I was wondering if I could ask about that. Like how, how did that happen and, and what was it like? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, politically a great time to bring that up considering what Suella Su Brogman was saying and, and that homelessness is a choice. I'd actually like to confirm that in my case, homelessness was a choice. I couldn't live at home anymore. And so I chose not to. Um, and that's as far as the choice will go, uh, you know, between a hard rock and a hard place and all that. Uh, and I didn't want to live at home anymore because it just wasn't where I should be. And I'm not going to go too much into detail because people are still living, but I didn't want to go, I didn't want to be there. So I, I had the choice of, staying there or being homeless for a little while and i wasn't homeless for a large amount of time i'm not going to pretend i was homeless for uh well on the streets for a few days um maybe like a week or so i slept well it happened twice uh, i slept on the beach i slept in the car park by hovetown hall i slept in a garage uh and i also slept near bright marina for a little while and um I was lucky to have a friend, you know, it's emotional even for me to talk about it now. I was lucky to have a friend that allowed me to stay in his little 
bedroom that he actually rented and I stayed on a mattress on the floor uh, in his place for quite some months. So homeless, yes, for a couple of weeks on the streets and, and whatever, uh, like in different times. Um, and homeless, yes, not having a place that I could call my own and living anywhere. Uh, but and because my friend helped me, I actually really enjoyed those times because I actually finally had freedom from the situation at home. I would remember it really clearly. The, the room was incredibly damp. Um, the, the windows, because in those days, everyone had single um, single glazed windows. And when you had dodgy heating, like gas heating, it was constant condensation on, on the windows. That's where you saw it. But of course, it was everywhere, including inside the bed linen and everything. And it wasn't great for my asthma, but I will say that some of those days were some of the best days of my life at that point because I had freedom and I had um, a safe place and I enjoyed listening to AM radio in the morning because you would wake up earlier than normal because you're not that comfortable, but I would enjoy that. I'd enjoy the fact that my knees would hurt when I would go to, 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 to work um because of the dampness but i just enjoyed the freedom and so i was lucky um very very lucky yeah i wonder if maybe this is a very sort of i don't know stupid thing to say but did that give you more drive to succeed in, in what you were doing you would think so but then i actually met some of these some of my school friends at the time and they always told me like at the age of 13 and 14 it was obvious you were going to be single-minded in music because you already were then and some things you even though i think i have a really good memory some things you truly forget um and they were saying no you were single-minded and this is exactly what you wanted to do and you were closed down with anything except for music so i think I, I didn't have a choice because I was supposed to leave school um, and do computer software engineering and artificial intelligence. And the money that was given, uh, put aside from that by my grandmother for me to go there disappeared. I don't know where the fuck it went, it disappeared. I also think I didn't have enough qualifications to get in there. So I really had to find my own two feet pretty fast because there was a choice. Either you do the normal thing, which is to... Um, basically go into oblivion and try to not deal with these things and of course brighton being at the end of the rail the railroad for a lot of people a lot of people from scotland would come down it was the end of the railroad the other the other place was hastings and, and st leonard's you would see people that would come down there and then get stuck in oblivion so it was almost like a great anti-postcard. It was like, no, stay away from drugs because you'll be at the end of St. James Street panhandling, shooting up, whatever it was, just stay completely away from drugs, stay away from drink in a big way and and just be single-minded. And I had to be single-minded because, you know, I've read so many other artists that I, that I respect, people like Luke Slater, people like that saying that music saved them it saved so many of us it was our it was our sustenance and our purpose and we were lucky that we came through at this particular time where we could actually do these things and live off it even though i only have given myself two years 35 years later i'm still doing it and 
so yeah it was it was a tough time but the single-mindedness i've always been single-minded always always because there's no point doing it any other way so another sort of thing that i read wikipedia was that you uh briefly wrote reviews for dmc update um what were you like as a reviewer Cunty. am i allowed to say that yeah I don't know. I don't know if, because this is for Spanish radio, right? Yeah. So I don't know if the word cunty is allowed, but I was quite. Yeah, cunty. yeah, definitely, definitely, yeah. I, I was quite cunty in some ways, and very, very honest and open and enthusiastic in other ways. And sometimes my cuntiness was deserved, and sometimes it really wasn't deserved, and sometimes I regretted it. Um, so you know, I really pushed Mixmag because I got sent um, by Mark Pritchard the first Aphex Twin record ever on white label. And there were only five, and I, I was like, holy shit, this is fucking amazing. I need to review it, I wanna make it single of the week. I had to fight for that. Really, really fight for that. Um, I think my editor at the time might've been Don Phillips, who sadly passed away uh, in not great circumstances, but he always made you feel you had to explain and earn that space for it to happen. Another form, one of my former editors, Nick Gordon Brown, I still talk to. He was great, um, and I really enjoyed it. But other other editors really didn't understand. I think people like Bill Brewster. Uh, I couldn't get my reviews in in a way they just didn't. They looked down on techno in a in a way at that time, like many people did. Pete Tong said there was no space for techno on Radio One. Many people didn't really understand it. So you know, getting that Aphex Twin in there was really, really important. I used to write for Generator before, so getting interviews with uh, Felix the Housecat and other people like that was really important. And also a little bit of a hack, because I was actually not hackers in journalists, but like a little bit of a life hack. It's like, so how do you produce your records? What equipment do you use? You know, it was just like, a, because they weren't being interviewed in Sound on Sound or any other music thing it just wasn't happening so it was my way of actually getting in there just gathering knowledge and information and intel and then of course sometimes i was cunty uh when it came to reviews which i i regretted it was uh, a record came out on excel from the prodigy and they said this is underground techno and then i reviewed it i said the only way this can ever be underground techno if you get a shovel and bury it because it wasn't techno it was hardcore and i was pissed off that that every, I don't care anymore what people do with techno. I just don't give a shit. But before I really cared. And I was like, why are you polluting techno with something that is something else? And I remember seeing the band in, in Germany and it was in a bar in a really bad hotel. We're all in a bad hotel. And oh my gosh, like daggers, total daggers. But they were really dignified, but total daggers. And, you know, I, I, I think I apologized then. And they were really dignified. And then when Firestarter came out, I found out uh, my previous um, uh, A&R guy who was still there, I said, I said, this is like one of the most important 12 inches since Blue Monday. This is amazing. So I'm honest, you know, but sometimes honesty is not the best friend uh, in the circumstance. But I really, it was done for a passion to really get the techno reviewed that just wasn't being noticed because it wasn't on Gorilla Records or it wasn't hip and it wasn't trendy and I really wanted to do that. And I also did reviewing as a, a life hack of getting all the promos because in those days you had to get the promo. So I'd have all these records beforehand. So yeah. And then in later years, if your records ever got a bad review, 
uh, did that mean you were able to sort of uh, get over it, or were you like, God damn it, you know? Of course, bad reviews hurt because we all have egos. Anyone that says I haven't got an ego is full of shit. Everyone has an ego to some degree, especially artists. You have to, and of course, like, huh? And that hurts. Uh, but actually, a lot of the time it's funny because actually, I mean, like I was speaking to some of the guys from Mixmag about six years ago. I said, "What are you even doing reviews anymore? No one buys music. They they listen to it on Shazam. They download it on Spotify, whatever it is. They listen to it three times and they forget about it. It's not important anymore to sort of preempt people on how to spend their money with good advice. It doesn't matter anymore. But yeah, when you get a bad review, of course, it can be a bit shitty." Um, you know, like on Archive One, I crossed off uh, one of the journalists called Ben Wilmot uh, because uh, basically he was being really cunty to me by saying that my music was changed because I signed to a major record label. And so I thought, okay, he was supported before and then I signed to Decon, so I then crossed his name off. You know, but then you see these people all the time. He writes, he, he writes for Electronic Magazine now. So, you know, you got to be careful with how you deal with these things. But I, I just did these things for fun, you know. Was he the person that called you a Tory or something? No, that was Paul Clark. See, I remember these things, and that shit hurts. Because what I was saying at the time was, I think that actually it makes perfect sense that we all should vote whether or not to join the European Union, because it's like 96 or whatever. Um, because if we pull out, it's going to cause a large amount of shit because no one voted for it in the first place. And... I wanted to be part of the European Union in that way, but I, and he just took that as me being a Tory because I, at that time I was also learning how to fly planes. And then, you know, the same happened to Gary Newman. And I fucking hate the Tories. Like, really fucking hate the Tories. I respected politicians that have a different opinion to me or a different belief. So I respected Margaret Thatcher for standing up what she believed in. But everything that she believed in, apart from going in the European Union, I fucking hated, you know? I fucking hated Milk Snatcher. I hated her fully. Uh, I, I hated John Major fully. I hated the Tories fully. Uh, I sat next to Michael Hasseltine once on a flight, and one of the w women in, in, the, in the, um, uh, the Conservatives moved over to the Liberal Democrats, and I purposely held the paper up with his, uh, her face opposite him, and uh, what do you think of this? Rhubarb, rhubarb, rhubarb. And and then, so I hated the Tories. So, and they knew I hated the Tories. And I hated the fact that they did this to undermine me. And so, yeah, I remember these things, you know, always. And Paul Clark is still a cunt. Always will be, as far as I'm concerned. You mentioned being on deconstruction, um, which you signed to mid-90s. Um, it always seemed like quite a strange fit to me. I mean, not because not because they were like a, a big label, but just because um, their I think generally the music they released was more commercial sort of house. I mean, M People is the one I, I always think of. What was it like being on on Deconstruction? So that's the right approach. The wrong approach is he signed to deconstruction, he's commercial. The right approach is why have you signed to deconstruction? What was that for? What was the logic? Okay, so the logic is really, really simple. Yeah, they had commercial stuff on there, but they also had really interesting stuff on there, like Dummy Mass, 
by uh, I can't remember who did that, but it's really interesting Latin thing. I think Mike Pickering was also behind that. They also had Packet of Peace, Jeff Mills remix, Lion Rock. They also had some weird Enjoy B-sides, which were actually quite interesting for UK commercialist techno, but it was cool. Why do you go to places to work? Because the people that work there inspire you, right? Yeah. And I have no problem if my record was to sell 30 million copies, if it's the same record. No problem at all. None. So James Barton, who now owns Superstructure, or is part of Superstructure, which is like the biggest fucking events company in the world, I think. He was the NR guy there, as was uh, Pete Hatfield. Pete Hatfield was impressive to me because he would say, I'm off to play tennis with Martin Fry from ABC. That was just a fun story, but for working with, not that interesting. But James Barton was cool because he had passion, vision, and belief. And he would talk to me at the end of, of um, my gigs at uh, Cream um, when, when um, I would play there. And I liked him because he really believed in what I was doing. He didn't want me to change the music. He didn't say, Dave, by the way, can you make it a little bit more bleh, right? He didn't want me to change the music at all. He just wanted me to do the music and he wanted to push the music. This is what A&R used to be. Now you go to, to an A&R person, they go, it's not very Spotifyable. Why don't you have a million people in your Instagram account next? In those days, people go, wow, I like this person or this group. They have a vision that's interesting. Their music is interesting. I want to champion this, push it forward. And that's exactly what I felt from James. Uh, I was never comfortable, even though I do photography now, I was never really that comfortable having my face have been photographed. So we got ranking to do the back of my head, which is uh, uh, Southside. And James would phone me up and say, you won't believe this, but there's massive amounts of humongous posters of the back of your head, the size of a London bus near Victoria. That's cool. Right? If you're working with people like that understand your vision, then propel it further forward by getting you to work with even nicer people, like people like Scott Peering. It's amazing. It's really, really amazing. So I wanted to work with people that believed in what I was doing and would open doors for it to be unchanged, but more acceptable. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think a lot of the deconstruction, well, your stuff on deconstruction hasn't been available for a while, right? Mm-hmm. Any idea why or what's happened? Or I love the way you're trying to lead me into this by facial uh, uh, signs. Um, well, basically, the deal. So, yeah, I was with Bush, and they were very honest at the very beginning of the relationship with me when they said Bush is another word for cunt. They said this. I didn't understand the meaning. Later on, I did. Um, and so I brought Bush into the fold because I'm a loyal person to Deconstruction. Deconstruction wanted to sign me, wanted me to void my contract with Bush and help me through that if necessary. I said, no, I want to stay with Bush and bring Bush into the fold with Deconstruction. And so that's what happened. Deconstruction always accounted to, with me. I have no issue with Deconstruction at all in the slightest. I'm just being clear. You can understand what I'm not mentioning and you can join those dots. Um, but and you don't have to say anything. And I'm saying with, with Decon, I have no problem with them. I really enjoyed it. I remember when James said he wasn't going to be AR there anymore. 
Uh, I was in Dublin at the time, coming down in the Clariston lift, and it was a horrible phone call because I really had a great relationship with him. And he's done so well for himself, and he works very hard, man with singular vision again. Um, but the deconstruction thing, they had a certain amount of years for the project. And then at the end of those, they don't have the rights anymore. Uh, and then I didn't have the rights. Right. Enough said, I think. Yeah. Um, and around this time, you started to play live. Um, yeah. Why did you want to do that? I mean, you're a very successful DJ. I didn't. <laughs> I really didn't want to play live at all. It just gave me nightmares because I was outside my comfort zone, despite the fact that David Bowie always goes, an artist should always live outside their comfort zone. I, I was enjoying DJing too much to think about, holy shit, I'm playing live. Uh, I didn't. I was pushed into it, and I'm really happy I was. Um, because it was an amazing, because as a DJ, when you play your own music, it's a different thing when you're sort of doing a rendition live of playing your own music and the crowd are there with you and feeling it. That's an insane feeling. Um, but I, I really had to be pushed to do it. I really didn't want to do it at all. Because it were well, why didn't you want to do it? Because it was also my comfort zone. And also, you know, some DJs are really easy to play their own music they'll wear a t-shirt with their own name on it and mention themselves in the third party like some fucking weird asshole and there's greater self-promotion you know and they'll put their name on everything if they made a jam it would have the name of the jam with their name on it and you know i never was like that i never felt comfortable doing that i even though i love to go to bands and buy their merch and stuff i don't feel comfortable with merchandise it just feels weird so I never feel comfortable with that really heavy self-promotion. I'd rather let the music do the talking. So I was really pushed into it and I enjoyed it. And I've only ever done it like twice. I did it, I think in 97 at Tribal Gathering. And then I did a small tour around uh, Devil's Advocate, which was actually quite fun. And in those days I actually had a team around me. So it was different things. And you released an amazingly good live album, uh, four, live. Yeah. Um, Again, why? Just because you wanted to capture that sort of live set you did? Uh, my road tour manager came up with the idea, um, who sadly passed away, committed suicide. Um, he came up with the idea, and then because I knew a few people at VPRO, um, we managed to get some of the video rights, because in those days it wasn't that easy. You'd have to have a big budget to have a film crew with you, and because I was doing stuff for VPRO, for uh, Ping Pop, there was a lot of film stuff already there by the camera, so we could actually get that. Skimp were also up for it as well. Uh, and then it just made sense to do it. And yeah, sometimes every sort of like five or seven years, I'll have dinner at a friend, I'll put it on in the background, and go, oh, I get goosebumps, because you feel it. it. It was amazing. And then you see the rudimentary, because it's so rudimentary. Again, it's about the music, so they'd be like, it's almost like Dave's disco that I used to have in the attic of, of my of my kids' house when I was a kid, with like whatever lights I could find. So there's like rope light around it, a trestle, um, and it was very very rudimentary. I still remember even going to Creamfields and actually they're forgetting to even have any tables for me to play live. Um, it was just rudimentary, but it was all about the music and the people just felt the music and it was so fucking cool. Um, if I do anything live again, it's going to be classical music. So that's interesting. So yeah, and I'm not joking. I'm serious. Have you got plans? Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, like, finally, we got the video rights for what I did with Mathilde in Charles de Gaulle Airport Variations. That's on my YouTube now, which is an adaptation of Gustav Holst, which was the first techno piece of music I ever heard in my life at school. Uh, blew me away. Um, yeah, we've got plans. Well, we've got not plans, we've got hopes. Uh, so let's see where the hopes go. But hopefully the hopes turn into plans. Without getting too technical, because I possibly didn't understand it, but like when I was listening to the live album, um, it sounded a bit like a very good DJ playing. <laughs> um, where's like the line between being live and, and DJ? Uh, well, DJing is absolutely pre-recorded and linear. Uh, of course, now you can fuck with the linear as much as you like and do different things. Serato stems, you can take out vo uh, vocals take out bass solo bass um but it's it's a linear it's an a to b thing the live thing um was a little bit linear but it still had a propensity and ability of moving into different directions and there really was a sort of backwards and forwards with the crowd more than i would actually with djing um because i was looking for the reinforcement because it was my own music so I would extend, not do things, blah, blah, blah. Um, it was all done on sampler. And if I didn't, if I wasn't there, it couldn't, you couldn't push play. No one could push play and it would happen. I had to be there for everything to happen. Right. You mentioned briefly Devil's Advocate, um, which was released in 2003. Um, one of my favorite songs on the album is, is Blue on Blue with Mr. Liff. Okay. Um, you were are a big hip-hop fan are you still a big hip-hop fan no i can't be asked with it at all now um i went through a phase of really really enjoying it again around 1997 to about 2006 7 i think you know when the alcoholics um method man wu-tang um uh, puma i think grand puma uh a lot of those things were coming through it was quite exciting at the weird time when even Radio 1 was, as the term goes, representing. Um, there was a lot of really cool hip-hop that came through that was really interesting with a lot of dub mixes. Uh, I was really enjoying it. Even the Bugged Out, I'd be playing hip-hop as well. You know, like Dougie Fresh came up with an amazing track at that time, and I'd be playing that sped up and mixing that in. It was a good time for, like, I think, maybe fourth-generation hip-hop. But then I, I really lost interest, which is okay. You know, I'm not going to put it down because other people enjoyed it, but I lost interest around 2006, 7, I think. Every now and then something pops along that whets my appetite, and I think, oh, this is really cool. Um, but it just, it just, I, I lost interest when it became about bling and money and status. How did that track come about with Mr. Liff? I, I like Mr. Liff, and we worked together. We did two tracks, one wasn't released. Uh, Blue on Blue was about friendly fire. Um, and that's what it's all about. And uh, it's cool we worked in the studio together. Well, how did like the techno crowd react? I mean, I asked because I wonder if you feel like a pressure to be, you know, uh, to use the immortal phrase, the Baron of techno. I just, I'll be who I am. If that annoys people, great. If that doesn't annoy people, great. If it, people don't care, great because I, you can only be you as an artist. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, like, you know, I started off DJing with hip hop, 
uh, really, and soul and, and funk. Uh, I DJ with the Jungle Brothers uh, and True Mathematics in at the Zap in the 80s in, in Brighton. I got canned off a hip hop jam for playing Acid House. Um, so, yeah, I, music is music. I mean, if you listen to my other radio show, The Saga, uh, I'm playing um, neoclassical, goth, all the music that I feel doesn't really get exposure. Uh, that's my passion. It's, finding music that I love and getting behind it and supporting it and actually finding like-minded souls and and really enjoying the people that make the music as characters as well. So I don't care about a caricature that's thrown on me. I'm still proud of that that moniker that, um, um, that John gave me, John Peel. Uh, and it's cute. I find it cute. Um, but, you know, you moved to Amsterdam in 2008. Um, do you miss the UK at all? Sorry? Do you miss the UK at all? No. What, why did you move then? What was it, if I may ask? Uh, I first did a gig here in 1990 and fell in love. thought I really wanted to live there, but I had no financial means of coming up with that dream. Um, it wasn't so easy to move around Europe as it was before Brexit and after everyone joining and stuff. Um, but I fell in love with it. I felt something. I think it's the fact that I then discovered later on that a large amount of my family were actually from the Netherlands and actually wandering around Vase, Harlem, Amsterdam, Amsterdam in the 1880s, working in uh, cigar factories here. And uh, I don't know, I think that the spirit of your relatives lives through you and maybe that came through me. And because Amsterdam physically hasn't changed hardly at all, then I'm probably walking the same steps past the same buildings that my ancestors were. And that's an interesting possibility thought pattern to think about. Um, but I, I always fell in, I fell in love with the place instantly, even though it was a different place then. It was more like Christianstown, I think, in uh, whatever it's called in um, Copenhagen, a little bit more anarchistic and rougher, more punk bars. I mean, now it's quite gentrified like everywhere around the world. Um, but I, I fell in love with it. And then I uh, got divorced and then met someone over here like about a year afterwards or nine months afterwards. Uh, yeah, it's about nine months. And then um, really got to explore the place by staying at their place and having a, a, a base here. And then thinking, actually, I really like it here. Uh, that relationship didn't last, although we're still friends. Um, and uh i just fell in love with the place and then kept coming backwards and forwards backwards and forwards backwards and forwards backwards and forwards uh and then eventually i decided oh, actually i should live here and then i did is it a creative place amsterdam mm, yeah no you know i would say copenhagen musically is more creative because the musicians feel much more open and more open for collaborative cork or even collaborative action so you would talk about music as, as, as a whole my experience at least within the techno world here is it's very very close apart from maybe a few people it's much more um it's much more about you know the marketplace as opposed to the passion in my experience however living here is definitely much more creative because i'm by water i've been inspired all the time 
you're allowed to look into people's houses when you walk because there's no curtains and you see pe how people live every time i walk out here in, at night in the winter it's like i have to pinch myself that i'm living here because it's a fairy tale and that inspires me the lifestyle inspires me that i don't need a car i haven't had a car for years and years and years and years i can just walk public transport and that gives you peace of mind and i just enjoy that as well um and the lifestyle here i really really love so yeah uh, i want to ask about uh the desecration of desire uh, which you released in 2017 particularly um working with mark lanigan on that how how does that process go i mean did was he aware of your music did he know what you did yeah mark really i mean bless mark i miss him i really miss him but he's he was a good age um yeah so i get a bit sad when i think about it um but yeah he, he really did know my music he was the one that would actually say to me what you just said earlier come on dave be the baron again be the baron you need to make more techno and you'd never expect the guy that was on queens of the stone age to be saying that shit to you when josh Homme is going around saying yeah techno is like no limits there's no limit you know you never expect the mile be like this but it's the same from this from the guy uh, that's in low you know he's a fan of atari teenage right you wouldn't expect these things to be but they are and that's what's beautiful about real music heads is they're passionate across the board and so with Mark, you know, um, I actually wrote my first lyrics for that, uh, The Charcoal Eyes. First time I ever really wrote lyrics in a big way. And I wanted to work with Mark and it was an amazing experience. And I sent him, I said, okay, Mark, I've done the lyrics. He's like, send them to me. I was like, okay, I'm sending them. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a lyricist. I'm not going to pretend I'm a fucking lyricist. I can write English really well. I can tell stories, but I'm not a lyricist. And I was like, he's going to think they suck. He's going to go, ah, yeah, Dave, they're okay. Within, I think, three hours, Dave, these rock. These are great. And he was so sweet. And then he came over here and we did the songs. And he actually told me that I should sing at some point. And I said, like, I think I respect the world too much to endure that on people. And then he said he used to sing so actually i think i'm going to do some singing lessons for myself i'm not going to be singing don't worry um but i just really enjoy it and it, it was such a lovely person to be in the studio with it's you know you never know what people are going to be like i met him outside the hotel and he was like quiet i was quiet and it's like oh this is going to be painful and then you know I invite him to the studio and then everything's fine and we talk and it's really nice and we're very open about our past lives we have very similar past lives in some ways um and his honesty i really loved his honesty you know people claim to be honest uh but they're not always honest maybe they're strategic but his honesty was just purity and i really respected that and i loved that do you mean honesty in that when you were making music if you didn't like something he'd be like no this doesn't work yeah probably um i'm, I'm i can be like that really quick you know um no it's just honesty in life you know and that always transposes into honesty in music if you're honest in life life is much more difficult than to hide behind the metaphor of music you can easily be honest about music uh compared to being honest in life he was honest in life i want to uh, end if i can with a few sort of quick questions general things um if let's say you were uh having let's say you're getting married next next month which dj would you get to dj 
I would never get married. Well, they're having a party then. Uh, okay, that's pretty easy actually. Uh, Trent Muller, Tom and his computer. Uh, I'm probably going to be playing with him in March actually quite soon. Um, Trent Muller, Tom and his computer, um, the ghost of Andy Weatherall, uh, DJ Hell, um, Kim Pears, uh, uh, maybe I would invite uh, John Peel's son as well. Um, yeah, all alternative that have a wide gamut, a smorgasbord available to them of sonic artillery. All right, what is your favorite club in the world and why? I think that's a really hard question. Um, I've played in fabric for 25 years. I, I just love the fact that it's still going and it still has a purity attached to it. Um, I love the Rex. Uh, I love the Fuse Club. I'm not so sure about the people that are running it right now. It's a bit weird. But the club itself and the people that come, I really enjoy being there. Um, I love Meltveg. It's not a club, but I love it for that and uh Meltweg is really really cool and i like culture box in copenhagen as well actually i like the small clubs yeah and which one track of yours do you think really sums up your work like if you had to basically introduce what you did to say my mum like what one track would it be okay so oh yeah we be scottish right yeah scottish. yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. What whiskey would you like? Come on, it's impossible. It's impossible. Oh, it's like I would I would choose sorry. like an old like if I'm in if I'm in a hot country, I would choose an old Pulteney twenty five, right? If I'm smoking a cigar which I don't do since I corona, I would choose um I don't know uh a Dalmore. If if I was in wintry fucking Amsterdam, I would choose a cow leela. Uh, you know, and if if I'm in autumn, I go for a Tobamori. It's impossible to go like that. I mean, Desecration of Desire was a real breakthrough moment for me. Uh, the next album that you haven't heard is a massive breakthrough moment for me and the person that I worked with. And that says more about me right now. Everything is a snapshot of where you are at the moment. And Desecration of Desire felt like my first album album because um archive one was ostensibly a collection of tracks um devil's advocate was yes an album but at the same time i was going through an incredibly heavy divorce with everything that was distracting about it as possible that put me off the game as much as possible but still i, I still stand by the album but it was not easy even the record label said to me okay you need to do wip's work in progress so we know what's going on to get me to go in the studio because i was distraught and destroyed um and desecration of desire felt like the first album that was a to b um going in that um carol king vibe of making an album that actually makes sense in its in its direction of how it plays in a linear way um so yeah and then the new album which you haven't heard yet is like the deepest shit i've ever done in my life i don't even know how i made it that's the beauty it's like i felt like i was taken over by uh, a ghost or something so yeah Okay, we're four minutes over, I think, yeah.
Okay, all right. Uh, just last thing then, when about ish can we hear? Any anything else you can say about the new album? Or it's stunning. It's uh not spotifyable. <laughs> it's definitely not spotifyable. It's really deep. It's so musical and it's not tenor. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time um, and I look forward to hearing it. You're listening to Radio Primavera Sound, proudly presented by Cupra.